0: Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series and podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Michael Mandelbaum, author and professor emeritus of American foreign policy at Johns Hopkins University, join us to discuss the Middle East and Biden's foreign policy. Professor Mandelbaum will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Professor Professor Michael Mandelbaum.
1: Thank you, Stacy, and uh, thanks to all of you uh, for tuning in, as it were. Uh, I want to start with a general comment about the Biden foreign policy. Uh, The Biden foreign policy suffers from three handicaps. Uh, First the Biden foreign policy team was basically the Obama foreign foreign policy team, or at least the second and third ranks of it. And the Obama foreign policy played out in a different world from the world in which we now live. Most of the Obama foreign policy took place in the post-Cold War world, in which the United States faced no serious threats. We now live in the post-post-Cold War world in which the United States has three major challengers, China, Russia, and uh, Iran. How we got from the post-Cold War world to what we have now is the subject of my book, The Rise and Fall of Peace on Earth. Well, uh, the lack of experience in this new world is one handicap and the second is related and that is that because the Obama, the sorry, the uh, the Biden team has spent its career in the uh, the post Cold War world, it has no experience uh, dealing with what is the central issue uh, in foreign policy when there are challenges, namely whether, when, and how to use and threaten force. Uh, That's an important question. It's in some ways the central question of American foreign policy now, but the Biden team uh, has no experience with it and seems to feel uncomfortable with it. It's never an easy problem, but it's the problem with which they must deal. The third handicap under which the Biden team labors is that, Since the Obama era, the Democratic Party has moved sharply to the left, and that affects foreign policy. Now, in the uh, at least rhetorical policies the Biden administration has adopted toward Russia and China, it seems to have adapted to the new circumstances. The rhetoric of its policy toward China and Russia sounds more like the Trump foreign policy than it does the Obama foreign policy, which is appropriate because this is a different world. But the necessary or at least desirable adjustments are not in evidence in the policies toward the Middle East uh, and in particular toward four relevant issues in American policy toward the Middle East, namely Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and Iran. So I will now discuss each of them in turn. Afghanistan is not part of the Middle East, but American policy there is relevant to American policy in the Middle East. And American policy as decided by President Biden is to do what his two predecessors wanted to do but in the end did not do, namely withdraw all American combat forces. Presidents Obama and Trump did not in the end withdraw all combat forces because they were persuaded that if they did so, there was a high likelihood that the Taliban would take over bringing with them terrorists who would then launch attacks on the United States similar to, or at least reminiscent of, those of September 11, 2001. Uh, that argument obviously did not persuade Mr. Biden, and the withdrawal was relevant to the Middle East because it raises the issue of American credibility. That is, it raises the question of whether the countries that the United States has promised to protect and defend will believe those promises and more importantly, whether their adversaries will believe those promises. Credibility doesn't matter in a world where there are no serious challenges, but it does matter in this world as as in the, the world of the Cold War where there are serious challenges. The potential damage to American credibility is not necessarily a clinching argument against withdrawing American combat forces, but it surely needs to be taken into account. And there isn't much evidence that the the Biden administration is doing so. Second, uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Biden administration is hostile to Saudi Arabia because the Democratic Party has become hostile to Saudi Arabia, in no small part because of the role of the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, in the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Now, uh, that was an atrocity, and Uh, Saudi Arabia is hardly uh, a model political system from the American point of view, but there are two issues that have to be borne in mind in dealing with Saudi Arabia. One is that Democrats especially want reform in Saudi Arabia, and MBS, as he's called, the crown prince, is the closest thing to a reformer that that country has ever had. Second Saudi Arabia is an ally. Uh, During the Cold War, uh, there were countries that did not practice democratic norms at home, but were friendly to and supportive of the United States and its foreign policy. And Daniel Pipes and Adam Garfinkel termed them friendly tyrants. Saudi Arabia is a latter-day friendly tyrant. It's an asset all things considered to American foreign policy and therefore cooperation with Saudi Arabia is warranted. The third issue is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And here, at least rhetorically, the Biden administration seems interested in resuming the so-called peace process. It's so interested, I believe, partly because the democratic foreign policy establishment believes in the peace process, can hardly imagine a world without it, has spent a good deal of its career devoted to it, and also because an ongoing peace process helps or may help with the left wing of the Democratic Party, which has become increasingly anti-Israel. It's a way of demonstrating the administration is concerned about the Palestinians and trying to do something for them. Now, there are three important arguments against the peace process. The first is it's not going to work. There isn't going to be a settlement between Israelis and Palestinians. And therefore, it's a political loser for any president who undertakes it, something that the last two presidents have understood. Second, a settlement between Israel and the Palestinians, although Desirable, especially for the Israelis and the Palestinians, is not crucial for American interests. Um, and third, there is an alternative way of dealing with Israel's relations with the Arab world, uh, an alternative way demonstrated by the Abraham Accords. Now, uh, President Obama, uh, sorry, President Biden, Uh, doesn't seem to be persuaded by the second and third of these arguments. He doesn't seem to uh, take on board that this isn't really important and there is an alternative way, but I think he's likely to be persuaded by the first argument. He's likely to see this as a political loser or at least not a political winner. So my guess is that he will not devote substantial political capital to it. That brings us to the fourth and final Middle East-related issue for the Biden administration, and that is the most important one of all, namely Iran. The Biden administration has seemed eager to re-enter the joint comprehensive plan of action, the so-called JCPOA, that the Obama administration entered into with the Iranian government, but that the Trump administration abrogated. But there seems to be a snag. Uh, Since the JCPOA is not popular, the Biden administration apparently feels the need for some kind of fig leaf, that is, some token concessions from the Iranian regime, which would allow the Biden people to argue that they've gotten substantial changes in the agreement in order to reenter it. But the Iranian mullahs don't seem to be cooperating. If anything, they seem to be demanding further concessions from the United States in order to re-enter the agreement. So the prospects for re-entry seem, at least from the outside at this point, to be uncertain. Now, the Biden people wish to re-enter the agreement first and foremost, at least in my judgment, because they are afraid that without an agreement, Iran will proceed, perhaps rapidly, toward getting nuclear weapons. Given all the rhetoric from American presidents, including Mr. Biden, about how unacceptable this is and that the United States will never permit it, in those circumstances, the Biden administration would have to do something about it. And what it would have to do would surely involve the use of force. And that, I think, is something that makes this administration very nervous. Now, in fact, the crucial element in preventing the mullahs from rushing to the bomb is to persuade them that if they do, they will suffer military consequences from the United States. And indeed, I would argue that persuading the Iranian regime that a dash for the bomb will bring forth a serious American military response is the most important task that the Biden Middle East policy now faces. Whether this is or will become the understanding of the Biden administration and whether it can persuade itself that this is something it ought to do, which is the necessary condition for persuading others, are questions which at this point, I think no one, or certainly not I, has the the answer. Thank you.
0: All right, thank you so much. Uh, We've question coming in from David Levine. Uh, isn't the rhetoric of the Biden administration more campaign assurance than policy?
1: Uh, well, I'm not. I'm not quite clear what is meant by campaign assurance. The Biden administration is certainly. Uh is certainly aware of the politics of every issue. Uh, and as I say, uh, part of its problems, one of its handicaps, is that it, it's dragged pretty far to the left, to the left of where the country is, and I would say to the left of where good American foreign policy should be, by uh the growing influence of the left. So uh, Every administration has to navigate when it comes to foreign policy between politics and policy. Uh, that task uh, seems to me to be uh, perhaps unusually complicated and difficult for this administration.
0: Thank you. From Kerry, how will the American administration react towards the Israeli-Chinese reproachment and close relations?
1: Well, uh, that's a problem in American-Israeli relations because the United States is becoming increasingly hostile toward China. Uh, For Israel, the American relationship is paramount, but on the other hand, Israel has its own interests. Uh, The Chinese seem on the verge of becoming more active in the Middle East. Israel has a powerful interest in having as good relations with China as is possible, certainly good economic relations, but also good political and military relations. So that it seems to me as American relations with China worsen will become increasingly a problem in American-Israeli relations.
0: Thank you. We had quite a few questions come in in the past 30 seconds. Uh, One viewer comments, excellent analysis. What do you make of where things are going with Iraq and ISIS?
1: Um, Well, I think it's very hard to say. The United States, of course, has kept some forces in Iraq as a check on ISIS. Um, The basic cause of the rise of ISIS is the uh, alienation of Iraqi Sunnis from the Shia dominated regime in Baghdad, and so the, the, the best insurance against the revival of ISIS is an Iranian, uh, uh, sorry, an Iraqi government in Baghdad that has decent relations with the, the Sunnis, with the 25 or 30 percent or whatever it is, maybe it's, it's less, of the Iraqi population that is Sunni. This is complicated by the history of Iraq, when for most of its history, since it was created by the British after World War I, the Sunnis were in charge and they, oppre- and they oppressed the Shias and those memories have not disappeared. And it's further complicated by the Iranian desire to penetrate and control Iraq and to make it a bastion of Shia power. So, it's a complicated matter, and I think it's very hard to say where things are going there.
0: Thank you. From Francois Laban: In describing the weaknesses of Biden's foreign policy, is there any positive aspect to Biden's efforts in working with the allies of the US, not just Saudi Arabia, which you mentioned?
1: Well, I think Biden uh, has done well in trying to repair relations with allies outside the Middle East. He's certainly more popular with America's European allies and with Japan, at least up to a point in, in, and and with our our friends and allies in Asia than was uh, President Trump. Uh, And it it was uh, a chief aim of the Biden foreign policy team coming into office to try to improve relations, especially with the Europeans. Now, uh, that's a good thing, but it only goes so far because uh, the Europeans and especially the Asians have a conflict, and the conflict has to do with China. On the one hand, they don't like the rise of Chinese power, and especially the way China is using that power, and they certainly want the United States to check it. Uh, On the other hand, Uh, especially in Asia, they all do business with China. China is a very important economic partner and therefore their preferred policy is for the United States to confront and check the Chinese while they stand on the sidelines. But that isn't gonna sit well with the American public. So there's a potential conflict there. Uh, So with America's allies, in opposing Russia and China, I think the Biden administration has made some positive steps. In opposing Iran, it has not done so well. Incidentally, for those who are interested, uh, I do do a monthly column. And my last monthly column was precisely on this issue. And I believe Stacy is sending you uh, over the internet, the, uh, the, the email address uh, to which you can send a message saying you would like to be on my monthly distribution list and I will be pleased to put you on.
0: Yes, I just sent that through the chat box again. If anyone would like to view that, it's in your chat box at the bottom by the Q&A. Uh, from David Naret, uh, what do you think of the new or revised Iranian leadership? Any dangers that are even more serious now than a year or two ago?
1: Um, well, the, the new Iranian President seems to be an ultra hardliner who was who was tapped and elevated by the the supreme leader, the Ayatollah Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, so he doesn't even pretend to be a reformer. And given his past record, we can expect him to take a harder line. I think what is probably going to be just as important, if not more so, in determining. Iranian policy and especially its policy on the nuclear issue and its relations with the United States and with Israel uh, is the fact that uh, the Iranian economy is deteriorating very rapidly. And there's even more discontent than in the past. Also the COVID pandemic is not remotely under control there. So dissatisfaction with the regime is mounting rapidly And in these circumstances, uh, this regime, as well as the Chinese and Russian regime, when domestic affairs are not going well, their impulse is to, to conduct an even more aggressive foreign policy so as to try to rally the public behind them against an external enemy. So as things deteriorate in Iran, it's possible that the Iranians will be even more aggressive. Of course, when the Iranian regime does well, it's also more aggressive. So uh, either way, it's trouble for its neighbors and for the United States.
0: Understood, thank you. From Jeffrey Sheff, do you believe that withdrawing from Afghanistan will reinforce Iranian assumptions that the US will not stop their nuclear program?
1: Uh, It certainly runs the risk of doing so. Uh, My uh, sense is, and this is just my judgment, that the Iranians concluded that Obama would never use force against them, that they really had nothing to fear from him. And that's why the JCPOA is a rather one sided deal in favor of the Iranians. And it's especially one-sided when you consider the fact that in such circumstances, it's almost always the stronger power that gets the better of the deal. But while the United States is far stronger than Iran, it's the Iranians who did well. Uh, My my sense is they were not sure about Donald Trump because he was so unpredictable. Uh, About Biden, uh, maybe they haven't made a decision yet. My concern is that the total withdrawal of combat troops from Afghanistan will enhance the view that they have nothing to fear from the Biden administration. I can't read their minds. I don't know how they think. They have many other considerations that bear on their decisions. But there is that danger, which is why I said that the issue of credibility does arise from the Afghan withdrawal.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, from Costa Saridis, uh, what military option would you suggest if Iran does go forward with the nuclear option?
1: Well, the obvious military option is to use air power to do as much damage to Iran's nuclear facilities as possible. Um, I should say two things about that. First, if Iran makes a dash from, for the bomb, If the United States does nothing, I suspect that Israel will do something. Israel will conduct military operations. But the United States having a much larger air force than Israel is in a position to do much greater damage and to set the Iranian nuclear weapons program back even farther. The second point I would make is that uh, in uh, defending the JCPOA, uh, President Obama used to say that the only alternative was war. Well, that wasn't true in the sense that the better alternative was effective deterrence. But if it does come to the use of force, if it does come to war, it need not and should not be a war like Afghanistan and Iraq. There's no reason for the United States to put boots on the ground in Iran. And therefore, there's no reason for the United States to take casualties in an operation that sets back the Iranian nuclear weapons program.
0: So to your first point in answering that question, Mindy Stein asks, is there any possibility that the Biden administration will give Israel the coordinates so that Iran will feel there is credibility to a military threat from Israel, if not America?
1: Well, I think that would be a good idea. And I noticed that uh, Dennis Ross, one of the veteran peace processors now at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, has uh, written an op-ed piece suggesting that the American government give to, India, uh, give to Israel its largest and most powerful non-nuclear bomb so that the Israelis could, if they needed to, use it uh, against uh, Iran. So uh, I, I think there are many things to do. I think it was a very serious mistake by the Obama administration and by President Obama publicly To try to prevent Israel from taking military action against Iran. In fact, what the Obama administration should have done, in my view, was to have said to governments that uh, would then pass the word on to the Iranian mullahs that, that the United States was afraid that if they didn't get a better deal from Iran, the Israelis would attack. In other words, uh, the United States should have been generating Iranian fear of, of uh, Israeli attack, whether or not the Israelis chose to attack, uh, rather than preventing it. And I think that is still true. But m- even more important, as I said in my talk, is to give the mullahs the impression, the strong impression, that if they make a dash for the bomb, the United States would step in militarily.
0: Along those lines, Robert Lieber actually asked, what is your view of Dennis Ross's proposal that the U.S. provides Israel with the the other bomb?
1: Well, I I should say that uh, Bob Lieber is not only a friend, but a very great expert on American policy in the Middle East, has written extensively about it. And uh, my view is that uh, the, the Ross idea is a good one. But it's not a substitute for deterrence by the United States. It's not a substitute for making clear to the mullahs that the United States will act.
0: And Jay Lewis asked, do you think Iran really believes that the US would use force to stop Iran from going nuclear? I know you've discussed this already, but what can we also do to make them believe that?
1: Well, uh, there are many things the government can do, starting with its rhetoric. and including uh, military exercises in the region uh, and uh, planning within the Pentagon, some of which can be leaked to the public. Uh, There are certainly uh, ways to uh, persuade the the Iranians that the United States is serious. And I think uh, President uh, Trump's uh, decision to take out the leader of the, Israel, of the Iranian Republican Guard sent a very strong message.
0: We have a few questions coming in about Lebanon. Uh, Stephen asked, can you analyze the danger of Israel, to Israel, of Lebanon becoming a failed state?
1: Uh, well, the danger from Lebanon comes from the uh, ballistic missiles that uh, that Hezbollah, which basically runs uh, Iran, uh, runs Lebanon what, which basically runs uh, Lebanon and is a, basically a puppet of Iran, could rain down on Israel. and the Israelis are aware of this. The, uh, a failed state in Lebanon would be, wouldn't be good for Israel. But uh, what is important here is that Lebanon has no diplomatic relations with Israel. Uh, It has seemed to me that the Arab-Israeli conflict, although undesirable in every other way, has been an asset to Israel in the sense that were it not for that conflict, if Israel had good relations with its Arab neighbors, it would have been inundated with refugees from Syria. And if it had good relations with Lebanon, it would be inundated with refugees from Lebanon, but I suspect that will not happen.
0: And Leonard Sands asks: do you see Israelis ta- undertaking unilateral action against Iran's nuclear ambitions?
1: I believe that if the Israelis conclude that Iran is on the threshold of getting a nuclear weapon and that the United States will not act, Israel will act. Thank you.
0: Uh, Michael Cavallo asks uh, Why do American presidents keep trying to, to work with Iran despite poor results of pursuing such policies?
1: It's a very, very good question. It's even in a way more serious than that. The United States has been the greatest asset to to Iranian foreign policy because it's taken out the countries and movements in the neighborhood that were most threatening to Iran. The the Taliban, which was very anti-Iranian, Saddam Hussein, ISIS, which was very anti-Iranian. Now, the United States had, had good reasons to do that, but all of these military operations redounded to the benefit of Iran quite unintentionally. Um, so the United States has at least been guilty of not putting uh, opposing Iran at the top of its priorities in the region. Um, and I think that there's a, that is a very good question, which requires an article to, uh, to answer. But I think part of the answer is that the United States has regarded other threats as being more serious than Iran. And in retrospect, that, that looks like a miscalculation.
0: Thank you. And in our final few minutes, or few seconds here, can you tell us where we can find some more of your work?
1: Uh, If you, uh, well, I've I've published uh, 16 books, they are all available on Amazon. I write a monthly column that I distribute free. Uh, To anybody who is interested. And if you are interested, send me an email at American Foreign Policy, all one word, at jhu.edu. That's American Foreign Policy at jhu.edu. And I'd be delighted to put you on my mailing list.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much again. Uh, We've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you, Professor Mandelbaum, for speaking with us today.
1: It's my pleasure, and thank you all for listening. Thanks.
0: For our viewers and listeners, please join us Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for an
1: update from Ashley Perry. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks.